0: This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel, challenge the status quo. It's, it's never is-
1: easy to yeah. challenge the accepted leaders This is the the hopeful message. To me, PCOS is an imbalance, not a disease. Polycystic ovarian syndrome,
0: otherwise known as PCOS, affects six to 12%, which is as many as 5 million US women of reproductive age. It also happens to be one of the most common causes of female infertility, Additionally, data shows many women take years to get properly diagnosed. A part of this is there are criteria that disagree with each other on what PCOS even is. So today I interview Dr. Jerry Lynn Pryor. She is a previous podcast guest who spoke on the topic of progesterone versus estrogen, and it is one of my top episodes. Dr. Pryor is a Professor of Endocrinology and Metabolism at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, and she has spent her entire career studying menstrual cycles and the effects of the cycles changing estrogen and progesterone hormone levels on women's health. And she also founded SEMCOR, which stands for the Center for Menstrual Cycle and Ovulation Research, which started in 2002. And she is a force to be reckoned with who really likes to think differently about how we look at women's health. So let's listen to this incredible conversation with Dr. Pryor. It is a true honor that she is making so much time to speak with Fempower Health about these important topics she studies so deeply. I know that you've been on the podcast before, but just in case there are folks who hadn't listened to you before, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background and then we can talk about PCOS.
1: Okay. I grew up in Alaska in fishing villages and have seen lots of life and different lived with different kinds of people. So I had to fight tooth and nail to get into medical school and to survive in medical school. And all of that background helped me to be able to have the courage to see things differently and to say things that I see differently. And I think it was a preparation for being in the right place at the right time so that I could help in women's health.
0: I'm the first generation of um, Hungarian immigrant parents, and uh... There was a lot of dynamics involved with that. And so I feel like they've passed on to me that fighter spirit of thinking differently. So mm-hmm. I completely get it. It's sometimes a tough place to be, though,
1: right? Oh, it's always a tough place to yeah. be. Yeah. No, inter- <laughs> it's never easy to yeah. buck the common concepts and challenge the accepted leaders, even if you do it nicely, and especially if you're a woman. <laughs> yeah. Basically, if it isn't fraudulent, and if it isn't exorbitant, you know, making a profit off of gullibility, then ideas need to be shared. Yeah. Why don't we first start out by
0: defining PCOS, and the important piece here is to differentiate it between ovarian cysts, because I do understand that this is still a common um thing gap in, in knowledge and information. So let's let's start out by that foundation.
1: A little story if I may. Years ago, a mother called me about her her teenager who'd had a catastrophe, which is a an ovary that twisted and then was causing pain and dying and she had to have that that ovary removed. And she was afraid that one, her daughter would not have a a future fertility. And she was also afraid that she had PCOS because the pathology of both ovaries showed multiple cysts and and both ovaries were enlarged. And so when I got the pathology, I began to ask, because this young woman had not had her first period yet. So how come she had cysts in her ovaries and enlarged ovaries that look like PCOS? So I learned from very old data that that was normal. that, That around the time of puberty, the ovaries get bigger, they get lots of cysts, and they can look like the typical PCOS ovaries. So I learned then that that the ovaries can make cysts for other reason than PCOS. And the common reason in non-teenagers or pubertal girls is because the coordination of ovulation hasn't occurred and egg has not been released. So there's a cyst, which simply means a fluid filled bubble or sac left in the ovary. So perhaps you can
0: Within the definition of it, give some perspective on why it is there is this um, lack of clarity. Because, as you know, when there is lack of clarity and alignment, that's going to impact people getting properly diagnosed. Absolutely.
1: So, I think the problem, the the heart of the problem, is that, like I said, the polycystic ovary and not ovulating occur in other circumstances than the androgen excess syndrome, which is what I believe is the only true PCOS. So it can be a transitional period between hypothalamic amenorrhea, meaning stress-related not getting periods, and the development of normal cycles again, for example. So in 2018, an international group said that you only need far apart periods and um, androgen excess, either clinical evidence like unwanted facial hair, acne, you know, male pattern balding, or clinical evidence of high male type hormones in order to make the diagnosis. You did not need to have cysts on your ovaries. And and as far as I'm concerned, that's the correct diagnosis and the categories of the Rotterdam, which is the previous criteria in which there are no high male hormones are simply not PCOS. In fact, I hate the name PCOS because it implies that the only reason for cysts in the ovary or multiple cysts in the ovary, which is what it means, is the syndrome of androgen excess, not having periods, et cetera. So I, I, I previously called it an ovulatory, meaning women weren't releasing an egg, androgen excess. The treatment, I think, would be quite different in in those who have hypothalamic, well, I know it would be amenorrhea, even if they have multiple cysts, than in those who have androgen access. It's, it's simply a different condition.
0: How clear are physicians and how aligned are they on that criteria? Because I read it and it was so thoroughly done. They had experts all around the world talking about it and- it seemed I looked at it, I'm like, well, finally, everyone in the world has aligned. But then it seemed like not everyone was like invited to the party, so to speak. So where are we today?
1: All I can say is that Helena Teed, who is the the leader and the coordinator and the person who brought the Divu- view. Defers voices together and and give her a lot of credit for including lots of women, Mm -hmm. women's voices, women with a lived experience of PCOS, in that discussion. I think it's because she's not a gynecologist and she's a woman. And so there are competing voices, but I think hers, hers and that international collaborative group is the definitive voice for anyone who wants to be scientific. Interesting.
0: So, so am I hearing you right that there are still doctors who still use like the Rotterdam criteria and others? Oh, yeah. Okay.
1: Well, actually, if you read the fine print, so did they. They said you don't need to do an ultrasound, but they ended up agreeing with the Rotterdam criteria because the there is incredible support for that. There's a particular uh, person in England who's a zealot about it. And okay. I, I connected with him years ago. And you know, all, that's all you can say is okay. that he, you know, he's right and everybody else is wrong. Okay.
0: <laughs> How would this manifest? A woman is struggling with weight, you know, the um, male pattern baldness and they go to their doctor, they're trying to figure out what to do. Do you find that if it's those types of symptoms, doctors pretty much assume that it's PCOS? Like where, where is that misdiagnosis, okay. that gap? The,
1: the important, the important thing is that all of the criteria for diagnosis say you have to rule out other things. Okay. So uh, I remember one time seeing a young woman who'd had no periods for years and who had clear androgen excess. And she turned out to have a pituitary tumor making um, increased hormones that drove her, her male pattern hormones. So you need to exclude other things. There's, a, there's an inherited um, congenital adrenal hyperplasia which can present with male hormone-type pattern and also infrequent periods. So, so it is a diagnosis that really needs an endocrinologist. And, and there needs to be care in making sure that there isn't something else going on. Are we finding that
0: OBGYNs, I mean, because you're alluding to going to a specialist, But I guess what is this gap in delayed diagnosis? I guess that's the part I'm struggling with. Are we getting better about it now that this criteria was established in 2018 around androgen excess? What is still that gap? Because I think it's important for women to understand the dynamics so that if they're at their doctor and they're like, why aren't they listening to me? Like they Uh better understand what they can do.
1: I think the problem is that doctors don't listen very carefully to women. They assume if a woman is overweight that she's overeating and not exercising. They assume that um, she's making it up when she says, well, you know, typically women will um, remove facial hair before they go to see the doctor and they will make themselves up. And therefore, when they present, unless the doctor is very clever, and ask specifically, they may not show clinical signs of androgen excess, right? So that's human nature on both sides. Yep. So, and, and doctors don't tend to listen to women period.
0: Yep. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. So it, So it sounds like just to break it up here, androgen excess definitely is the theme here, but we need to understand why someone has it. And for those of us, ladies who get nervous, like even actually my sexual health doctors, they're like, women will apologize because they think they smell bad. And they're like, you can't like prepare for us because then we can't help you. So like, just come in as you are. We truly care and want to help you. So no plucking facial hair, (laughs) it sounds like as well. (laughs) So what about the treatments? So, and and by the way, for, for testing androgen excess, is it as simple as a blood test?
1: I think we're oversimplifying it because there are several different androgens that could be tested and uh, there's disagreement about which ones belong in that bin, et cetera. I mean, but the combination of any clinical signs and just One of the ones that that I learned long ago is, and a question I always ask is, how frequently do you need to wash your hair? And if a woman says more than once a week, you know, that suggests to me oily scalp, oily hair, and that is part of the same androgen excess thing.
0: So you mentioned, um, I know we've, there's been many different uh, thoughts around birth control, and I, I believe you'd also mentioned concern over the birth control and PCOS. Tell us, tell us more about this.
1: Okay. At its base is the fact that the birth control pill has been the go-to therapy without further thought, evaluation, anything for 50 years. And it's a band aid. It gives regular periods. It makes the woman feel comfortable because it's a common uh, medication or, you know, it's common in, among their peers. But it doesn't solve the problems. It doesn't address the problems.
0: Yeah, no, I don't disagree. And, and I guess I'd love you to comment on um, the pill bleed. I know that there are strong opinions um, amongst various experts on the term pill bleed and that it's not a real bleed. And I think, um, I'm not sure if there's misinterpretation of the intent or if it's not necessarily correctly stated, so I'd love that nuance as well, is um, that you can have pill-induced
1: PCOS I mean, yes. When you're on the pill, you don't ovulate, and therefore your ovaries get more cysts. But um, that's a really an aside, because I'm not relying on the ultrasound at all. And and it it is, I think it's wrong to make women have to have an ultrasound when you can make the diagnosis without it. And there, you know, it's an expensive test. In the old days, you had to have a full bladder and and hold that full bladder agonizingly long to get the scan. Nowadays, someone has to stick a probe in your vagina in order to get the probe big, to get the scan. And those are invasive, it's expensive, and it's not necessary. So someone is making money when they ask for it. Help us
0: understand this thought that's out there around pill-induced PCOS? Because what I keep hearing is that you, sometimes it takes a little bit of time after you've been on the pill for your period to get regular again. So it's not necessarily that you have PCOS. So can you, is that more what it is? Okay.
1: That's right. It's a transition to normal ovulatory cycles. Okay. And the transition goes through a period when there's imbalance. And there may be androgen excess.
0: But it's a transition. Yeah. And the, is the concern more if through a certain time period, I don't know if you know the magic number, once you've gotten through that period, then you're okay? Yeah. Okay. And how long should a woman be waiting after they get off the pill
1: to say, er, maybe I need to get this checked out? That's a question because it depends on how old they are, whether they ever had regular periods before. Okay. But, it, you know, the pill is used as a therapy for things it doesn't treat. Right. So I want to I share with your listeners that in a, in a follow-up study of women who are treated in a particular medical center for loss of period. Amenorrhea, they looked at what therapy the, the women had had. Some of the women were given the pill, some of the women were given menopausal type hormone therapy, and some of the women refused therapy. And of those women, the quickest to recover were those who refused therapy. The next quickest to recover were those who were on the menopausal hormone therapy, which has lower dose estrogen. And the pill took years for those women to recover. And in fact, fewer women actually totally recovered, either regular cycles or fertility. So in other words, it, it's not a good therapy for amenorrhea. It should not be used as a therapy for amenorrhea. And it doesn't protect bones in young women. In fact, it's detrimental for normal, healthy girls to be on the pill in terms they just don't gain the bone growth they should be gaining. And there's also evidence that you take it in your adolescence, you have an increased risk for depression, not only when you're a teenager, but lifelong. So there's some really serious concerns about the way we're currently using the birth control pill. Yes. The real problem with the pill is that it doesn't address the root cause right. of PCOS. So we have to talk about the, the multiple theories of the cause of PCOS. So there's a group of doctors who believe it's entirely genetic and there is definitely a genetic component and it can affect men as well as women. So men get early balding, for example, and obesity and diabetes um, more commonly. But in women, um, they may know that their aunt had trouble getting pregnant and never was able to have a kid, for example, right. or had irregular periods when you know for most of their life, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so there's a her- hereditary component for sure. There's a group of people who says it's because for whatever reason that baby, when that girl baby, when in utero was exposed to higher male hormone, and that is clearly an ideology in things like primates, monkeys, for example, And but it's unclear how that happens in humans. mm mm-hmm. Um, and how often it is, etc, etc. There's another group that says it's all has to do with insulin resistance, and some genetic thing related to insulin mishandling, or lack of lack of appropriate insulin action. And then there's a another final group that says it's all because of inflammation. Now, none of those answer or explain all of the spectrum of of physiologic changes that occur in PCOS. And so the, the root cause that makes sense to me is genetic and other influences on the signals from the hypothalamus going to the pituitary and the ovaries. And the basic thing is that Gonadotropin releasing hormone, the hypothalamic hormone, is pulsing. Normally it pulses, but too rapidly. So the rate of pulse has to do with whether the stimulation of the pituitary is to make LH or whether it's to make FSH. And that balance changes, obviously, across the menstrual cycle because you need FSH in order to ovulate. But what LH does is pulse rapidly also, the level is increased, and that stimulates particular cells called theca cells in the ovary and in the follicle itself to make male hormones. And when LH is rapidly pulsing, FSH is suppressed. The system perpetuates increased androgen, and decreased progesterone. And along with androgen goes increased estrogen. This is the the hopeful message. To me, PCOS is an imbalance, not a disease. And Mm -hmm. the imbalance can be corrected and everything about it can go away.
0: Ooh, so given that, then... What and it's funny. This past week, um, I launched uh, an episode on hormonal imbalances, and it's really interesting because it's um, Dr. Sean Tasson and he really um, has this interesting way of looking at hormone imbalances. Where he talks about, he wrote this book, and he put them into archetypes. Where it's like, if these are the dynamics that are happening with, with happening with you, it's probably this combination of hormones that are off, and here are different things that you can do. And so, like the way you're describing it, it's almost like there's this PCOS archetype. Um, And so, if it is this way of this complexity of um, how the hypothalamus is is, um, initiating um, the way the hormones are working in the body, then if we look at it that way, what would be the change in potential treatment then?
1: You know, it would be clever of me if I said, Yes, I figured this out (laughs) and I tried this therapy and this therapy works in my hands and in my for my patients but the reality is that when i first began to practice in vancouver mm-hmm. i was a new endocrinologist i had very little clinical experience and because i was a woman and there were none in endocrinology i got overloaded immediately with women with androgen excess hirsutism acne Etc. And, and I had almost no experience with it. So I was reading like crazy. And one of the things I read is that women with PCOS are at increased risk for cancer of the lining of the uterus, endometrial cancer. And wow. I knew that that meant too high estrogen and androgen and mm-hmm. not enough progesterone. I also knew, of course, that they didn't have regular cycles. So I said, what if I gave them back? And in those days, we didn't have progesterone. We had a cousin, synthetic medroxyprogesterone. So I gave initially 10 days and later 14 days of medroxyprogesterone. And it was remarkable. They began to be better. And some of them had very heavy beards, you know, going all the way down their neck and everything. And and so I said, well, maybe I can add to that cyclic progesterone something that blocks the male hormone action. Okay, so it, it turned out that in my research endocrine training, I had worked with spironolactone which was initially trialed as a blood pressure pill. But we learned very quickly that in the men, their breasts got swollen, their libido went away, their testosterone went down. So it was not an appropriate therapy in in the necessary doses for blood pressure. But if it blocks the androgen action, it should help along with the cyclic progesterone. So I started giving that treatment and women began to cycle regularly. Their androgen excess decreased. Eventually they could stop those medicines and they were ovulating on their own. And I probably followed 200 women during my clinical career and followed them for years, some of them 10, 15, 20 years. And, and they, when they got to perimenopause, they didn't have intractable bleeding that led to a hysterectomy, which was the usual story. Yep. And, and in fact, one particular patient of mine who ended up providing the donations that started Semcor was such a woman. She said, I don't want hysterectomy. What can I do otherwise to stop this heavy bleeding? And in her, I gave her progesterone, you know, a strong dose of progesterone for a long time. And it was better. And so I was able to prevent hysterectomy for her. Wow. Yeah, so that's an interesting story. And I I should have twigged because I had read the papers, but I didn't for a while until there was a review by a group by um, John Marshall's group. He's a British trained man who's still working in Virginia in the States. And his review said, this is the etiology of PCOS, this rapid pulsing. And when you give progesterone, the pulse slows. (laughs) However, what he, his testing only tested progesterone with estrogen. And I didn't want to give estrogen because estrogen suppresses the whole system. I right. wanted the system to recover.
0: So the spranolactone, I have read in many documents that it is used for PCOS. So it sounds like the gap is the progesterone. That's right. So let me ask you this because progestin is in birth control.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. But the birth control pill is the, archetypal example of hormone imbalance. The estrogen dose, even in the low dose pills today, you know, 20 micrograms say, is still four times physiological. At best, the progestin is close to physiological.
0: So the issue is the estrogen that's in the birth control, not that it's progestin.
1: Yes, that's the issue. And most most progestins are derived from testosterone. So they have some androgenic actions as well as progestogenic actions.
0: Is there anything else? So what I'm hearing then is the ideal treatment would be progesterone. There's concern about the birth control for everything that you just mentioned. And then also um, the spironolactone, and that should be sufficient,
1: It will be unless a person is very overweight or Mm -hmm. has reasons they can't exercise or have trouble losing weight, then metformin is quite helpful. Metformin is a medicine that makes the insulin more effective. I'm hearing a lot of people talking
0: about um, myonositol as being another medication that people can take if they can't take metformin. Can
1: you comment on that? Okay, so first of all, metformin needs to be started very slowly so if you start extremely slowly give the first dose at bedtime say and and about a quarter of what would be an an optimal dose and work it up gradually there's very few women that can't tolerate it in my experience
0: here's how i have simply understood pcos and again i dive into so many different women's health topics this is why i rely on the experts here but the theme i tend to see when i hear people talking is you know it is a complex condition like i know at ucsf they actually have a pcos center and i've spoken to a couple of their doctors on a few occasions and they're really working on having like mental health specialists and uh-huh. nutritionists uh-huh. etc and so i guess i just wanted to speak to you about the team that would need to care, obviously endocrinologist as well, because I don't want people to walk away saying, okay, Dr. Pryor says take progesterone and sprentalactone and you'll be cured. Everything is great. So can you, can you just talk about the whole sure sure dynamic that people need to consider? So they don't say, why am I not healed by taking these two meds?
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and, and people ask me, how long do I need to take them? And, right. And that depends on a person's weight, how they feel about themselves, whether they're, you know, have the energy and the self respect to be able to change their diet from what makes them comfort, you know, comforts them. And we all, I mean, most of us eat for comfort. And to do the exercise that's hard to do for some people. Um, So, but but definitely mood and negative body image are an important part of this. And, And it's a consequence of these abnormal hormones and society. Because I think PCOS makes women feel not like women anymore. And that's devastating.
0: I'm sitting here thinking about a couple of women who had reached out to me and both of them had really extreme PCOS cases. And I'll have to see if I still have their contact information because I want to send this to them because they were truly at their wits end. And at the time, mm-hmm. I only knew the things I had just identified and I clearly didn't know about your research at the time. But they were like really uh-huh. like, had run out of hope. Um, yeah. So I no, hope they're doing OK it, now.
1: It's very difficult. It's a terribly difficult disease um, or condition. It's not a Mm -hmm. disease. Um, Let me explain a little bit more about how progesterone works. please. Okay. And and this is why I sort of feel bad that I didn't figure out the physiology before I did. Um, But basically, in the normal menstrual cycle, the pulse of um, GNRH, the the brain hormone, is increasing toward the mid-cycle to make the LH peak, which is what comes before ovulation. And we know that in the normal menstrual cycle, as progesterone rises, that pulsatility slows. And it doesn't slow if ovulation doesn't occur. So in other words, progesterone specifically addresses the issue that the pulsatility is too fast. And it probably feeds back to the brain. In fact, I'm sure it does, not just to the pituitary. So it's solving that basic problem.
0: Is this something where... Like I'm thinking where they've gotten to now in their life, where they've probably been struggling for years, probably depression leading to eating more to mm-hmm. like, it's a bad cycle, right? So, you know, would this also be fair to say that it's a call to action for making sure that as soon as we're starting to see that it's a, an issue to really making sure you're addressing it early on? Cause it seems like if we get the right treatment, it, it's quicker to getting back to
1: mm-hmm.
0: what normal is for them.
1: Yeah, usually it starts in adolescence. Okay. And it starts with cycles that remain irregular, you know, two, three years after the first period. That's okay. the clue. And that's a clue that comes from a, a very good population-based study that followed adolescence in, in the um, part of the Netherlands, south of Amsterdam. So, So if a woman young woman has persistent irregular periods, you know, more than two years beyond her first period, then cyclic progesterone is the right therapy, not birth control pills. So let me ask you this,
0: just to be very clear here. One, I have heard that it takes a while once you start menstruating for your cycle to be normal. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case... And if it's the first period and it's irregular for two years, how do we know what's normal adolescent body trying to figure itself out versus initial signs of PCOS?
1: Because there are also other androgen excess symptoms. Okay. So acne is bad, You know, oily hair, starting to get hair on the chin. It, it's not common in adolescents to get much hair because it takes a while for the The follicles to change from making the fine hair that's normal to making the darker, thicker hair that's not normal. Um, And it's not going to hurt anyone. Anyway, I'm not, I mean, the first two years are fine. And in fact, you're quite right that it takes about 10 years before ovulation is consistently and securely present for the majority, 95% of us. Let me be clear. Okay, we've published now one person who took cyclic progesterone with androgenic PCOS, who took cyclic progesterone for six months and recorded her experience in the Daily Menstrual Cycle Diary. And what we observed with that person over six months was a marked decrease in breast tenderness in, the, in fluid retention and in mid-cycle mucus secretion. So in other words, it looks like it was decreasing the high estrogen plus giving her a regular, regular period.
0: Wow. So we know really is amazing, right? Yeah.
1: So we know <laughs> that. And we're currently doing a prospective study in 40 women okay. in whom we're giving progesterone cyclically and spironolactone. And okay. each woman is her own control. So we've recorded Hormones and experiences and things at the beginning. Okay. we're recording experiences throughout cycles throughout, and then we compare the change over time. In fact, the the main outcome of the study is uh, what's called PCOS specific question um, quality of life questionnaire. Mm-hmm. So that that includes domains of androgen excess cycling. Uh, fertility, emotions, et cetera.
0: Wow. When, is that, um, when do you expect the trial to be complete?
1: It depends. We have 18 women currently enrolled. We need 40. So we're, okay. we're having a bit of trouble. If anyone knows anyone in the greater Vancouver, Canada area who has PCOS, please ask them to get in touch. You already did this in your clinical work
0: and saw that spironolactone and progesterone worked, why do you need to do this study?
1: Because it wasn't documented in my okay. clinical work. It, it wasn't controlled adequately. I didn't have uh, consistent hormonal and, and appropriate questionnaire data. Um, yeah, it, I tried actually very, very hard to do a um, randomized control trial of this therapy versus the birth control pill. And each time I applied, I got a lower score. Nobody was going to buy that. It was an appropriate comparison. So hopefully when we finish this trial, it, we will have evidence that, that a comparison with the standard of care is needed.
0: Very Exciting! I'm definitely staying tuned. Anything else that you want to share about your research or anything um, we can do to support the the efforts of um, your wonderful organization?
1: Well, um, I'm I'm uh, facing the reality that the center that I founded and have been supporting for almost 20 years will have our 20 year celebration in May is not going to survive when I no longer am working. So we need both a professorship in women's health in endocrinology to to examine the women's reproduction from the perspective of a non-surgeon. And we need the funding, and SEMCOR doesn't take a lot of funding to keep going. Uh, we're managing to do what we do on about a hundred thousand a year.
0: Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Good to know. Um, Thank you so much for talking to us today about PCOS. Um, Every conversation we have always blows me away. And uh, thank you truly for, for this information and your dedication to women's health and and really advocating um, and working so hard uh, against, you know, just, the big healthcare system. <laughs> um, well, I'm
1: very, very grateful to you for giving me the voice to speak to more women.
0: Yeah, no, I'm more than happy to do it. So we will make sure we get as many people out there as possible to, to listen to this.